we find people that basically can't make enough uh, to, to, to eat before they go into the fields. I don't believe that. I think that you're looking at other places that are not Central Romana. People actually who focus on and who like getting an orgasm never get one. Pull up your socks and figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> Any chance we'll ever get to be a completely resting? Oh, yeah. And for the future, it's always uncertain. Whatever but more uncertain. Uh, listen, Blue Ivy is six years old. Beyonce is crazy. She tried to outbid me on a painting. Everybody in Atlanta right now at the Louis Vuitton store, if you black, don't go to Louis Vuitton today. In fun. That's Four, why you need to take three, a meeting with Kanye two. West, Bernard Arnault. Hello and welcome back to Grub Stakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy, and today I am joined by my good friends... Yogi Polywolf. Andy Palmer. Steve Jeffries. And so we've spent most episodes of this podcast talking about the collapse in living standards, life expectancy, and rule of law in the United States. Mm -hmm. And now we wanted to mix it up a bit and spend a few episodes taking a special look at Russia in the 1990s, a country with from which no modern U.S. parallels can be drawn. <laughs> uh, just totally out of left field. No lessons here whatsoever. That's right. Uh, and uh, I read this book uh, called Godfather of the Kremlin by uh, Paul Klebnikov, uh, which, uh, to my knowledge, is the best English-language book on Russia in the 1990s uh, that I'm aware of. Uh, it does have some limitations, primarily that it, it focuses mostly on domestic Russian actors in the 90s and mm -hmm. only kind of briefly passes over the role of international finance capital in you know, Switzerland, London, New York City, sure, and sure. asset-stripping Russia. Uh, but I also feel like an asshole sitting here in an air-conditioned downtown Brooklyn apartment criticizing this man who was shot to death in Moscow in 2004 uh. for writing this book, which I am uh, talking about the limitations of, uh, knowing that I would probably not be willing to get shot to death for my book about Russia in the 90s. Yeah, but if you change your mind, we can probably work something out. <laughs> so it's like, I don't have any actual standing I'm just saying that this is going to be the primary source, at least for this uh, first part of these episodes, and we will try to supplement thousand, that. With, thousand Patreon challenge. <laughs> we will try to supplement that with a more international focus later. But the point that I'm, I'm making here is that uh, this book is going to be most every statistic or factoid that I throw out, unless otherwise cited, will come from this book. And I do highly recommend it. As I did mention, the author was the editor of uh, Forbes Russia. And he was killed in 2004. He was shot to death in Moscow, uh, most likely for his reporting on organized crime in the Russian state. Do you know when this book was written? This book was written in 2000. I understood. Stephen, you want to read the uh, opening uh, quote by W.B. Yeats? Well, you could just read the entire book. We don't have to do a podcast. <laughs> read the book to the audience. <laughs> now, it's got a quote in it. I looked at it for a second. I was like, you know, th these coming out of Stephen's pipes, oh, it sounds go. pretty good. Go. <clears throat> Things fall apart. The sinner cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are fully full of passionate intensity. Thank you. That's the slouching towards Maybe Bethlehem, beans. right? <laughs> what rough beast slouches towards Bethlehem to to be born? Right, really? To put it in other words, we're going to go on a journey for how... Um, the chairman of the presidium of the Supreme Soviet of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, went yes. from that position uh, to doing a Pizza Hut commercial in 1998. <laughs> 
but what a Pizza Hut commercial. You oh, know? it was the yeah, one hell of, it, probably top three pizza. I think it goes what the poem was about. It goes the the Bigfoot six footer pizza, <laughs> then the Gorbachev commercial, and then the third one with this one hot chick from like 2006 that I can't I don't know what it was about, but it has some hot chick in it. And uh, I took a photo over on my phone, and every time I look through my photos, I'm always like, hey, who's this hot chick? I'm like, oh yeah, I wanted to text my friend. I was creeping on this girl that was in a pizza commercial. <laughs> I don't know her name, but I know she was hot, and she was in that pizza commercial. You don't know her name, but you do know her home address <laughs> and her social. Somebody should make one of those like uh, memes of Gorbachev, where it's like, you know, if you weren't there when I was grinding, and it's him as the general secretary <laughs> of the Communist Party, and then it's don't expect to be there when I'm shining. That's right. And it's him <laughs> doing pizza. <laughs> you got to start from the bottom as mm-hmm. the general secretary of the Communist Party before you can do pizza That's right. commercial. That's right. Can't just start doing pizza commercials. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, I think just like up top here, uh, and we'll certainly take as much time as we need. Maybe we'll we'll most likely stretch this over multiple episodes, but we'll just spend five or ten minutes talking about why Russia in the 1990s matters. Because I think a lot of Americans don't know this history, and I do think it is very relevant. Uh, I will say one thing. uh, Missed opportunity to dress Gorby up as a slice of pizza and use the splotch as a pepperoni. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not to correct Sean, but I do think that the American education system certainly slacks on the Russian history. But I will say that if our international listeners also want to inform us what they do and do not know about the USSR, that would be wonderful in the comments. Mm -hmm. Well, it's kind of interesting, like, you know, as an American, certainly on MSNBC or whatever, especially since Trump has been elected, you've seen Russia painted as this, like, number one international villain. Right, right. And I think the entire history of just what happened between the collapse of the Soviet Union and the rise of Vladimir Putin is forgotten. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why it matters is, like, first of all, the modern... That can't be intentional. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, the modern parallel, but it's also important to know uh, if you are an American, why Russians hate you. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, just, like, that kind of background, but... Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're telling me if he dies, he dies with some sort of propaganda to make us hate Russians? (laughs) (laughs) He was so mad that he didn't get the Pizza Hut commercial. (laughs) Should have gone to Drago, bro. Yeah. That's why, you know, they say there's a stereotype about the Russian not valuing human life. That's right. And this is because there is only one opportunity for a Pizza Hut commercial (laughs) in all of Russia. And uh, Gorbachev got it. Uh, But, you know, parallels to the modern U.S. I think uh, we mentioned or I mentioned at the top, you know, we've talked a lot about the collapse in living standards and life expectancy in the U.S., the deaths of despair epidemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's actually been a a decrease in life expectancy in the United States for the first time since the Spanish flu 100 years ago. Uh, Apologies to all our Dago listeners. I I shouldn't use that. That racist terminology for the 1918 flu. It probably started like in Kansas. Yes. Yeah. They were burning uh, uh, turds or something. Yeah. In yeah. Base. Like troop turds. Yeah. Uh, inflation also. Yes. Yes. Uh, it hit 5% year over year mm-hmm. today. If it rises, similar. Rise. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That was good. Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah, similarities. Don't the beginnings anyway the 80s inflation for russia right i mean i think i've made this point on the podcast before i think kind of what we're seeing in the united states is like russia in the 90s but in slow motion sure like in 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 russia in the 90s it just with the collapse of the soviet union everything happens all at once 
you know, there's like a, a 50% collapse in GDP over four years. There's this massive epidemic of excess deaths, alcoholism, suicide. You know, everybody's thrown out of work. A uh, hundred million people are thrown into poverty. So all of that all at once. But in the United States, particularly if you look at these former industrial towns where, you know, all the jobs have been outsourced, you'll see a similar pattern in terms of deaths of despair, in terms of community breakdown, alcoholism, opioid use. So it's it's there's a lot of modern lessons for Americans from looking at Russia in the 90s. One more similarity on the econ front here. Uh, balance of payments, mm. uh, not necessarily a crisis, but um, Russia, like in its heyday was uh, a net exporter of like capital goods and big machinery that people need right. like to the the periphery of the USSR. Like they would, they would sell big machines. People used to manufacture stuff. Hmm. Uh, but then later in the late seventies and eighties that stopped and it went in the, the reverse direction. Hmm. Interesting. Well, they didn't have the petrodollar baby, <laughs> but um, I think the, the one That's thing true. that we, they, they hmm. lost, they lost their petrodollar. Oh yeah, the the petro ruble. Oh, was that in the Caucasus? Yeah. Well, during the oil boom, they had basically a petro ruble. Oh, nice, mm. nice. Yeah. So that that went away after a while. One 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 thing I don't think you're gonna see in America is that massive drop in GDP. Um, because I get the sense that America will find some way, someone to invade, or some way to just use its military to, I don't know, force the international community to do something to keep America's GDP at least level. Hmm. Yeah, I guess like one difference between Russia in the 90s and the modern U.S. is that the collapse in GDP uh, actually mattered for life expectancy, <laughs> whereas here the GDP is growing, but it doesn't really seem to matter for anybody's actual lives. Yeah. Hey, listen, Bezos and another billionaire, Branson, are going to space. Okay, That's you're true. telling me that this happens in uh, 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 the 90s of Russia? Hmm? Uh, in the 90s? I don't know. Maybe some shit. There's got to be a parallel. Yeah, no, there's. I, I don't see any parallel. Maybe not for space. But no, actually, there was some space stuff. Now that I, I think about it, there were a few like civilian space stuff going on around that era, if I'm not mistaken, now, I the Russian do not, space program. I do not see any parallel between uh, modern billionaires performing the <laughs> functions of government. <laughs> In Russia in the 1990s. <sighs> there, this billionaire is this like billionaire NASA. Yes. <laughs> there were a couple cosmonauts just stuck on Mir when the Soviet Union collapsed. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, and they had to wait a couple months for actually like... kind of works. Yeah. They had to wait a couple yeah. months for the Soviet Union to figure out how to... Let, or not the Soviet Union, but the, the new Russian Federation to figure out how to get a rocket up to them oh. while rebuilding their government. One last thing before we move on to Stephen's point about manufacturing leaving Russia. There are a few things that I uh, enjoy that are involving uh, glass, like uh, like vacuum tubes for amps, as well as uh, glass for cameras and stuff. And in those communities, they look at bongs. No, it's not. It's literally about Nixie tubes and uh, and uh, uh, cinematography glass for cameras and stuff for tobacco smoke. Yes, of course. <laughs> no, but but outside of Shad's joke, water pipes. Um, yeah, like, you're supposed to say water pipes. <laughs> it's legal now. We can say whatever the fuck yeah. we want. Um, but in the 50s, 60s, and and early 70s, Russia Russian glass is heralded as like, oh no, this is the fucking good shit, uh, as well as um, a few other uh, uh, things like that. So the manufacturing leaving Russia hurts the world. 
Yeah, but you know, they actually, it's true that their, you know, glass production industry fell apart. But in the 90s, Russia made a lot of advancements in the uh, sex trade industry <laughs> and the trafficked children industry. And it uh, made up for all that mm-hmm. glass they lost. Yes. Yeah. Online multiplayer clans. <laughs> <laughs> they learned how to how to diversify their economy, That's which right. is an important thing That's for right. a country to have. Right. It's a, it's a ransomware hacking based economy mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's actually you know very specialized uh, according to economic theory. Um, <laughs> but before we kind of like uh, start uh, chronological and and what we're going to do with these episodes is we're going to start with uh, Mikhail Gorbachev in uh, 1985. So we'll give the la- we'll we'll tell the story of the end of the Soviet Union, but. You know, certainly it's it's a subject that uh, has a lot of depth to it, so we could revisit it later. A lot of people trace the end of the Soviet Union, you know, or at least the seeds of the end of the Soviet Union, even before Gorbachev. He did kind of inherit a, a bit of a mess. But just for the sake of time, we're just going to start with Gorbachev and we're going to spend most of these episodes focused on the 1990s themselves and what happens after the Soviet Union is gone. But before we start with Gorbachev, I do... Chris, hit the teen spirit. (laughs) Don't hit the teen spirit. They will kill us. Before we start with Gorbachev, I just want to give a couple uh, illustrative statistics with regards to those deaths of despair that I mentioned earlier, just so you can uh, have some idea going into this of, of what Russia in the 1990s was actually like. And first, I will give the U.S., Stats. I've, I've given these before, but this is just from NBC News. In 2018, some 158,000 U.S. citizens died from deaths of despair. Hmm. And this is suicide, drug overdose, alcohol poisoning. 158,000 U.S. citizens in 2018 compared to 65,000 in 1995. Oh. So almost tripling. And this is all pre-coronavirus pandemic, pre-lockdown, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. In Russia, between 1992 and 1997... 229,000 Russians committed suicide, 159,000 died of poisoning while consuming cheap alcohol, 67,000 drowned, usually the result of drunkenness. Mm. Uh, You add that up, it comes to about 91,000 deaths of despair per year on a population of 148 million, so less than half of ours. So, you know, when you adjust for population, they were uh, facing even more deaths of despair on an annual basis than we were. And then in addition to the deaths of despair, you actually had, because of the collapse of the Soviet Union, you had a collapse of the healthcare system in Russia. So if you want to even go beyond deaths of despair, like I think the most disturbing statistic is the excess deaths. Um, by one study, there were 3 million excess deaths in Russia between 1992 and 1998 as compared to the same period of time in the Soviet system in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. So you take, you know, uh, this is a six-year period, 1992 and 1998. You compare it to uh, some timeline in the 1980s, the Soviet Union of the Russian state, there were 3 million excess deaths, right. more than we would expect to occur. And as I mentioned, you know, this is because of the suicides, the, jo- the alcoholism, uh, the job loss, the 100 million Russians being thrown into poverty, and also the collapse of the healthcare system. So all these other old diseases come back. Right. But at the same time, uh, famously during Gorbachev's uh, time in power, there was a massive vodka shortage. Uh-huh. And once they reinstituted capitalism, you had these, uh, you know, these quote, deaths from despair. You can't, it could be just be a death from having a good time from vodka. <laughs> so, you know, you take the, the, the good with the bad. It is true. The fentanyl deaths are all marked deaths of despair, but you know, they were having a great time. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
<laughs> I like the idea that like it's like a person looking at those numbers just be like, well, well, how many of them were partying though? Because these numbers don't reflect yeah. all that. I mean, were they smiling while they died? Because yeah. that, that's a huge part of if the deaths are despair or not. I think the deaths from despair is. Uh, uh, a puritanical moral judgment. Yeah. Well, we're not going to get accurate statistics until they uh, ask the dying people to rate their happiness on a scale of <laughs> one to ten. I don't believe in any statistics anymore. Is this a thing that's normal? Like, I'm telling you, I don't think anything's true. I'm like so broken <laughs> that like numbers, I don't, I don't even fucking believe them. Math? No, I don't think so. Most numbers, I feel like, are trying to portray a story to make you buy or believe something. And I'm not buying it anymore. Am I becoming uh, a Trump supporter? You're becoming Rene Descartes. Oh. Chris, can we just get some uh, I am the walrus over Yogi's? <laughs> Let's get some real psychedelic. No, but you know what, though? The reason why I feel this way is because, like, I used to do a job where I had to uh, interview people outside of movie theaters to watch an unreleased movie trailer. Mm. And we'd have to ask them to, like, give their opinion on the new trailer. And it would take like 30 minutes sometimes. Motherfuckers were like, I'm going to leave after a few minutes. And then the next manager that came in was like, oh, you guys are actually asking people? No, you're just going to make up all this shit. No, 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 you can't. <laughs> you have to You have to fake all these numbers. And ever since that job, I'm like, canvassing, fucking uh, any, anything where they went, we asked people what they thought and they told us. I'm like, it doesn't work. It just does not work. Yeah, uh, just a note for the listeners. This is Yogi's mindset after he stopped smoking. <laughs> That's also weirdly related to the decline and fall of Russia, maybe. Mistrusting. Uh, well, no, faking statistics. Oh, yes. Well, that's why I brought Eventually. it up, obviously. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right, I, right. I think, uh, yeah, all the problems that are facing Russia are due to a mistrust in uh, institutions, uh, which is now a major problem in the United States, which is why people should trust more institutions again. That's right. Um, but so to kind of start uh, from Mikhail Gorbachev and kind of go the uh, chronological thing here again, um, unless otherwise noted, all statistics and such comes from the book Godfather of the Kremlin by uh, Paul Klebnikov. Uh, the book talks a lot about a now deceased Russian billionaire oligarch named uh, Boris Berezovsky. Uh, he is the the named Godfather of the Kremlin. Uh, so the book kind of focuses a lot on like his rise to power in the 1990s and and what he did and we'll we'll talk about him a bit more later probably at first we're just gonna i'm just gonna focus on the parts of the book that are more structural less about individual uh bad actors uh so to kind of go back mikhail gorbachev becomes the general secretary of the communist party march 1985 so he's the de facto leader of the soviet union march 1985 and he inherits a bit of a bad situation i don't think anyone will deny that the war in Afghanistan had been dragging on, you know, uh, Russia's Vietnam. Uh, this is, of course, you know, driving up consumer prices at home, right. causing shortages, all this stuff. Uh, the book points out in December 1985, so this is the same year Gorbachev takes power, Saudi Arabia announces that they'll no longer support OPEC oil prices by limiting production. So oil prices drop 69% within eight months. Nice. And so... <laughs> I knew it was coming. I should have just said 68% or some shit. <laughs> uh, but uh, so anyways, the point is, you know, Russia, their economy has always been very dependent on oil. Gorbachev takes power. You know, within a year, oil prices have collapsed because of uh, OPEC. Um, the war in Afghanistan is dragging. Uh, Chernobyl happens in mm -hmm, 1986. Mm -hmm. So he inherits a lot of different crises at once. Um, his uh, reforms... A lot of people know about Glasnow and uh, Perestroika, 
the political reforms. He allows freedom of speech, freedom of the press, popular elections for the parliament are held. And this is, I think, relevant because uh, we're going to talk later about Boris Yeltsin, the president of Russia in the 1990s. And he's kind of remembered in the West as a Democrat. And uh, aside from the fact that he uh, rolled tanks on the elected parliament, there's a variety of reasons why that's wrong. But the main one is just that all the democratic reforms that existed in Russia in the 1990s were put in place by Gorbachev. They were right. not put in place by Yeltsin or or these fucking people. Hmm. Um, so in terms of like why the Soviet Union collapsed, and I would be curious uh, for feedback from the listeners on this, because I, I think this is a topic of debate among you know leftists generally, but the book uh, Godfather of the Kremlin uh, does seem to attribute a significant amount of the, the crash to the Soviet Union's vodka prohibition. <laughs> Which, you know, hey, maybe this is why the guy got shot to death, uh, <laughs> just stereotyping the Russian people. Um, but it, it's, it's interesting where, uh, essentially, when Gorbachev came to power, there was this alcoholism problem in the Soviet Union, uh, the vodka consumption, you know. Um, and he came up with the idea of basically doing prohibition, mm. like the United States did in the 20s, sure. except for it wasn't that they made vodka entirely illegal, but uh, they made it very scarce and expensive. And he did that almost immediately after taking office. There was actually a, a joke that Gorbachev loved to tell. I guess it was a Russian street joke where there's a, a massive line outside the vodka store. And a guy comes to the back of the line and he goes, what the fuck? I am going to go kill Gorbachev. And he walks off. And then a short time later, he comes back to the line and the person in front of him goes, what happened? He goes, well, that line was longer. <laughs> well, and that's basically it because, you know, so again, Gorbachev takes power 85 almost immediately after taking office. He tries to tackle this uh, social problem of vodka. Um, and what happens was the Soviet Union actually had an alcohol monopoly, which had been a pillar of the Soviet economy, uh, typically making up, according to the book, about 25% of Soviet government revenues mm. came from the fact that the Soviet state had a monopoly on alcohol and vodka, right. and they would collect revenues off of that, and that was like a quarter of their money. So when uh, they didn't prohibit vodka entirely, but they made it very scarce and expensive, unsurprisingly, just like happened with U.S. prohibition, mm -hmm. this pushed it into the black market. Mine's uh, going to be black. <laughs> So instead of, you know, 25% of government revenue coming from vodka, now all of this money is going to private black market criminals. And it just so happens this coincides with another Gorbachev reform, which is that he allows, quote unquote, cooperatives in 1987. And these are private businesses that are allowed by Gorbachev. Uh, these are trading companies, banks, restaurants, shops, etc., and what happens is a lot of these bootleg or alcohol sales get reinvested into these cooperatives, into right. these private businesses that are starting to take over the Soviet economy. And quoting from the book here, as this vodka mafia evolved into a national network, it relentlessly corrupted the government apparatus, starting with local police, the courts, mayors, regional communist party bosses, and ending with ministers of the central government. And as a result, the government, the only institution capable of fighting organized crime, began to crumble. So he does, uh, uh, the author Paul uh, Klebnikov, does attribute a significant factor for the Soviet collapse 
two being this vodka prohibition, which was undone after a few years. But uh, he says the damage was already done because, you know, so many billions were already transferred into organized crime hands, Mm -hmm. which in turn was pushed back into this private economy where they start buying everything up with these these vodka dollars. And, you know, as Andy mentioned with the street joke, Gorbachev was so violently unpopular Mm -hmm. because of this policy that he just kind of undermined his own government. Is there a comparable quarter of the U.S. economy that if it were to be, you know, demonetized or illegal, that it would just funnel itself into organized crime? I mean, like, well, we did basically do the same thing with prohibition. Like, but like in the in the modern day era. Do you uh, here now? Yeah, right um, now. Drugs. I mean, that's kind of happening, but on the other way around. I mean, well. I was just, I just meant with marijuana, but that there's yeah. more drugs than marijuana, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean the the ones that they haven't legalized yet. I mean, it's been going on. It's not as acute because it's been going on for decades and decades now. Sure, sure. You are right, though. I mean, uh, heroin sales do make up 25 percent of the CIA's budget. <laughs> <laughs> it's unfortunate that they uh, released those budget numbers with that included. <laughs> uh, but so that's like one factor he attributes to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then the second one is called the ruble overhang, which I read. And then I was like, I don't know if I can explain this. I could probably just make Steve explain it. And he has a master's degree in economics and he might be able to tell us a bit more about the the ruble overhang and why that was kind of the second factor that uh, the author attributes for the collapse of the Soviet Union. Ladies and gentlemen, the ruble overhang with Stephen Jeffries. <laughs> it sounds like a movie title. Right. We got to get him his own like theme music. Mm-hmm. Oh, this yeah. is going to be the regular recurring steak segment. <laughs> like, hang up. The, the ruble overhang yeah so the ruble overhang is a basically an imbalance between the bank deposits in the credit system of the soviet economy and the amount of rubles that were actually circulating like people were actually using to buy goods and services Mm -hmm. in the domestic economy and so there were a lot more bank deposits that people had, like, they were saving up their rubles in the form of bank deposits and not really spending them. And in the middle of these economic reforms that Gorbachev was doing, uh, he and his planners in the Politburo were afraid that, okay, once we liberalize, like, the price system and people start spending shit on, like, imports and whatnot, Mm -hmm. the price of, there's going to be, like, wild inflation Mm. if we don't do something else in order to get people to use some of these savings on other things that don't yield like a cost push inflation. Right. So he had all these different ideas and even actually like, uh, there's some, there's some back and forth between him and, um, like Reagan Mm. on this, on this point, actually sure (laughs) over the phone about what to do and like his planners. And uh, it's 4 PM. I have to go Gorbachev. (laughs) It's time for my nap now. (laughs) Reagan, if it overhangs, it overhangs. <laughs> to be clear, he wasn't talking to Reagan, but rather one of Reagan's advisors. Of sure. But Reagan was there also. Yeah, he was watching cartoons in the next room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this was viewed as a problem because it was like, it was during the liberalization, they're trying to make it so prices can move a bit. 
And they're saying, what if everyone just goes out and spends all the rubles at once, basically? Do you think like when Reagan was like fully senile, they would just like wheel him into a room and tell him it was the situation room? <laughs> <laughs> Be like, How do I know this is the situation room? Let's because you're here, Mr. President. <laughs> Let's just get him like a smell proof room and put like a couple of like maps on the walls and then he'll <laughs> think he's directing operations. I think they would just... Uh, hired Jimmy Stewart to stand around and tell him he was on a film set. <laughs> the the ruble overhang kind of like hides the deeper point of well, consumer goods were being rationed before, like during the seventies and into the eighties, mm-hmm. and they were perceived as being lower quality than the West, and like consumers in Russia just just straight up didn't really want them. Interesting <laughs> and. And they're saying like, all right, well, we're going to have all this output that no one wants from our factories. So what do we do once we liberalize our, our economic system? And they wanted to say like, all right, we'll, we'll give them a higher interest rate on their savings bonds. Huh. That'll be great. So they'll just buy those instead of spending. Right, right. And or they're like, all right, we're going to make it so they can't actually convert it over to dollars hmm. because at the or there's, we're going to say like we're going to allow them to convert to dollars at a an official rate for the first time in a while because they hadn't been doing that before, and they'd actually been another black market that um oh, it's got to be black, yeah that they were dealing with was the underground market for dollars, hmm. because there's like an official exchange rate that was only available to like state officials and uh what are what are called um special trade officers hmm. who are running overseas businesses to get to sell exports to get foreign exchange, that which was really necessary to get imports. And the average the average Russian the average USSR citizen didn't really have access to they weren't allowed to convert their rubles over to dollars or other foreign currencies for a while. Uh during the eighties. Hmm. And so uh employees working for those special trade companies and state officials in the Politburo and like um, had this official rate that they would exchange at and then they would go to the black market and then make a killing off of the difference between the exchange mm-hmm. rate in the official one versus the black market one sort of like happened in like frankly Venezuela yeah. you know? like they have a black market for dollars as well my um uh high school economics teacher actually uh, he once showed us a slideshow of his trip to the Soviet Union, um, and he he talked about how during that trip, uh, he's he, like accidentally has a slide with like two thirteen-year-old Russian girls. <laughs> like, no, whoops. <laughs> he said that him and his brother, like you know, ran into some Russian guy um, who was like, "Hey, you have you have dollars, right?" I uh, and you know offered to trade you know way more rubles for those dollars than. Um, they would have gotten from the standard exchange rate. And he talked about how scared him and his brother were when they were then going, uh, leaving the Soviet Union and going through, I guess, Soviet customs. And his, his brother had stuck the money in his shoe or something. Mm. And um, he, he was astounded that they actually managed to get away with it. But So was the ruble overhang caused by the difference between the black market and the official price then? Uh, partially. The state needed to defend its fixed exchange rate <clears throat> between uh, dollars and rubles, and it was increasingly having trouble doing that because it wasn't getting as much foreign currency, mainly dollars, from its 
from exporting things. So like right. it used to be exporting capital goods all over the place oh. and then getting dollars from that. But that stopped after a while. <laughs> and they, this led to like kind of a, like for a while they were food sufficient. They could, they could get pretty much all the grain they needed either by themselves or by importing food from like the periphery countries, right, right, like uh, their allies in Africa and South America, they would get food from them mm-hmm. using forex from the oil revenues. Gotcha. And so, like, they would get dollars from selling oil to people, and then they'd use the dollars to get food. And so, if you didn't have a good harvest, it was okay. But right. when the oil price declined, they couldn't do that anymore. Plus, when Stalin wasn't in power anymore, they no longer had someone who was paying the clouds in Ukraine not to rain. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so like you can see that ruble overhang is a term that kind of covers a lot of different things. Yeah, Yeah, it seems to be all-encompassing. So it was like, in a technical sense, it has to do with the amount of savings in rubles that people have that they could use suddenly on consumer goods once they liberalize trade. Right. But it actually encompasses all the other issues that are basically saying like, there's a lot of these crazy imbalances in the economy that if we just unleash them all at once could create, create havoc. Hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting where, uh, there are a few ideas proposed to fix the ruble overhang, but the various governments uh, just kind of kick the can down the road until they settle on um, the worst possible way to fix it, which is to immediately liberalize prices and unleash 4,000% inflation (laughs) in the price of milk, uh, which is, you know, what milk? Yeah, milk, eggs, bread. Just anything uh, you need, just everything that's, that's, yeah. That was like a, like, they said, like, all right, we're going to take, we're just going to, like, gradually liberalize certain types of goods. Yeah. And then work our way up to the ones which we know are pain points, like right, consumer right. goods that everyone thinks ours are shitty, but, hmm. like, you know, we can't really do much about that right now. Sure. I hate when you, like, wake up from a ruble overhang and remember that you texted a girl a dick pic the night before. <laughs> No, baby, that wasn't me. That was my friend Vlad. Just be like, I'm just not going to mention this and hope I don't run into her in public anytime soon. Babe, Vasily made me do it, or he said I'd have to drink the vodka backwash. (laughs) The hangover, but 1990 Russia. The crazy night in Vladivostok. That's right. (laughs) Uh, But we'll get to... See, you didn't call that movie the the morning after despair. (laughs) That would be like a Russian The Mm -hmm. Hangover movie. (laughs) The morning after despair. (laughs) It's like during during The Hangover is the collapse of the Soviet Union. (laughs) (laughs) Like you, you, you caused it. Right, right. Oh, man. Last night was so crazy. Yeah. Our friend was drowned in the river Volva. <laughs> uh, but we'll get to the uh, the uh, ruble overhang and the uh, the explosion of prices there. I did just want to mention a couple other things before we get to that. This is gonna that's gonna happen in the ninety three ninety two. He said I'd rather drown drunk than live sober. <laughs> I don't know why I needed to get that line in there. Look, you got a tag. You got to deliver yeah, that's it. That's right. <laughs> There's a FedEx here. We've got your tag. <laughs> Uh, But anyway, so what should be noted before the collapse of the Soviet Union, which officially occurs in 1991, and we're we're about to get to that, but what you should understand is that the KGB 
had become, if it wasn't before, the primary instrument of the state, of the Soviet Union before mm-hmm. the collapse. So until 1991, the KGB, and again, that's their you know secret intelligence service, their security service, their equivalent of the CIA, if you happen to not be familiar with the KGB. Until 1991, the KGB was involved in industry, transportation, telecom, the army, police, culture, uh, Basically, every aspect of Soviet society. Rigging American elections for Donald Trump. Yes. Must sprung up overnight. Well, it's interesting. Like the book Godfather, the Kremlin, they uh, have some very fascinating stories about the KGB was involved in establishing fake political parties, political honey traps just throughout its entire existence. So, like, of course, with the liberalization and democratization of Gorbachev, like the KGB helps set up various political parties. In fact, Vladimir Putin, who is, of course, you know, as MSNBC viewers will be aware, a KGB agent. Right. We'll be right back. Yes. Uh, he was... Hey act- there, I'm Chris Hayes. He was actually the uh, the uh, uh, chief aide to one of the primary uh, liberalizing Democrat politicians in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also... Uh, the book talks about how the KGB set up some ultra-nationalist like right-wing anti-Semitic party oh, really? that like, you know, criticized the Soviet system and all this. And it's just entirely like, uh, it's so interesting and bizarre, but it also makes sense that this kind of intelligence agency gets so involved in the modern political process to the fact where in the first uh, elections in 1990, uh, the KGB actually fielded several thousand candidates, the majority of whom were elected. Hmm. Uh, this is for the Russian National Parliament in 1990. They have these first elections since the revolution in 1917, and the KGB fields thousands of candidates, the majority, several thousand candidates, the majority of which were elected. And of course, there is no parallel in the United States when right. uh, every other Democrat is a former employee of the CIA <laughs> Or the uh, uh, National Security Administration, mm-hmm. or whatever the fuck, or Andrew so, Yang. Yes, so it's just kind of, it's just kind of interesting the the way these intelligence agencies shape domestic politics right, right. in various ways, uh, and you know create these various political parties. But the relevant thing, in addition to like their let's say psyop activities, is that in 1990. Uh, things are getting a little bit bad in the Soviet Union. That's short for psychological operation. That's true. Uh, it, so by 1990, things are getting bad in the Soviet Union. You know, like by the late 80s, things are going like people know the collapse is coming. 1989, of course, the Berlin Wall falls, uh, but the Soviet Union's still there. So in 1990, the KGB circulates a policy memo among like higher up people and among uh, some members of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, uh, this policy memo uh, states that the KGB should collect billions of dollars of Soviet government funds during the quote-unquote period of emergency <laughs> and transfer them to a network of captive banks and trading companies, mm. then keep them uh, for connected Communist Party members until a better moment arrives. Oh. So it's it's kind of interesting where uh, the, the phrase uh, Paul Klebnikov uses is that the ruling Communist Party in 1990 decides they can't crush the black market that has been created by these cooperatives and by the vodka prohibition and all this. They can't crush this black market, so they might as well join it. They might as well suck funds out of the state, you know, billions of dollars, and have their little network of captive banks and businesses and just kind of 
transfer these state funds and use it to take over the private entrepreneurial system that is springing up in Russia. Now, were these cooperatives like actual cooperatives or was it like a, a <laughs> no, I, this is a real question. Or was it like a propagandistic name for like small businesses? Uh, yeah. it, it seems like it de facto became the latter. I mean, like, okay. I don't know when they first set it up. It was probably more towards the former. It's just because of like corruption and all these factors we've mentioned. It very much just became well, mafia businesses. <laughs> no, it's amalgamated bank. Don't yeah. worry. Welcome to legitimate credit union. <laughs> uh, yeah, our, that, that's that's an East German accent. Yeah, uh, all the hitmen we hire worked for uh, worker-owned cooperatives, <laughs> so we're actually still leftists. Like one one hitman, one vote. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but so the book talks about many of the new uh, entrepreneurs who are chosen by the Central Committee of the Communist Party and the K KGB to represent their investments. You know, they're getting startup capital to go into banking or whatever else. Many members of the Communist Youth League get startup capital this way. So it's it's just kind of an interesting transition point from the collapse of the Soviet Union to the beginning of Russia in the 90s, because mm. something we always look at on this podcast is who gets startup capital and how. So what you see is there are these billions in government funds that technically belong to the Soviet state that the connected Central Committee insiders and the connected KGB higher-ups are siphoning off and then kind of handing out to be like, hey, you know, this person at the Communist Youth League, they have an idea for a computer company or something. Let's give them some startup capital. Right, right. It's just entirely about what your connections are to either the Communist Party or the KGB. That kind of affects your access to this particular pool of capital. There's a guy in the 90s in Russia that got caught cheating uh, by his girlfriend. Babe, it wasn't me cheating. It was a honeypot by the KGB. <laughs> I don't even know Sonia right then. She just showed up at a bar and said, hey, I'll suck your dick. And I was like, well, I, I can't say no to this. <laughs> now, was one of these people Thor Bjorgolfsson? Yes. Uh, yes. I mean, like, well, th those kind of, we've talked about a few different, like, foreign... Icelandic billionaire who's yeah. recovered in a previous episode. I believe he comes in in the early 2000s from my research, uh, so it's slightly... No, I think he's in the 90s, but I think he's in the later 90s. Like he, if I recall, he and his dad arrived in the late 90s. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it booms in the early 2000s. I think you guys are right. I do believe that as the uh, USR is collapsing... I'll listen to our Thor Brogan Beer Golf episode for the correct facts that we can't remember right, right. now. Let's not fucking well, drug you up the past. It is like interesting where we talk about Russia in the 90s and it's just this massive period of just wholesale looting of a nation, but it's divided into different periods of looting. <laughs> True. So you have the first looters and then you have the, uh, the first looters are like more international and then like the... Right, they're like the pixies. Right. They're like the people from Switzerland and London and Mark Rich, another person we did an episode about. Uh, he is definitely like one of the early... He's mentioned in The Godfather of the Kremlin. He definitely made a lot of money, kind of asset stripping Russia. And then these like you know, uh, entrepreneurial domestic Russians with a can-do spirit said... Right. The Nirvana you know, and Pearl Jam. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. They said, if these foreigners are ripping us off, we could rip us off just as good as they could. That's right. You know, it just uh, anything an American can do, a Russian can do just as well. So that's kind of the second wave of ripping off. And then you have the 96 election, which is the third wave of ripping off. Harvey Danger. And then you have the economic collapse in 98, which is like one last hurrah and then uh, kind of uh, audio slave imagine yes. dragons mm -hmm. yes 
Green Day. Mm. Green Day. Uh. But so, uh, uh, just to kind of like uh, put a button on the uh, the KGB uh, uh, role here, there's a quote from a former... Is it a red button? Yes. <laughs> to put a, a red button with the hammer and sickle in the form of a star. Uh. On the, yes. On the KGB role here. Uh, the, the book quotes the KGB general Oleg uh, Kuligin, hmm. who uh, defected to the West, uh, he says, quote, as the KGB was leaving the scene, it didn't simply disappear. It left behind various political and commercial blocks. Don't forget the party maintained a significant fortune and a huge amount of property. Uh, technically, of course, this was Soviet government property. But as the Soviet Union dissolves and becomes the Russian state, this property becomes property of the Communist Party members mm. and their private orgs rather than the Russian state. So, you know, billions of dollars get transferred into the hands of these now private actors. And it should be noted, the CIA, according to this book, was aware of all this kind of like money laundering because, you know, of course, billions were being moved offshore. Right, right. According to the book, Godfather of the Kremlin, there was a CIA note in 1992 where the Russian government asked them for assistance in tracking down the funds. And the CIA said they didn't want to endanger their network of assets. Uh, but I would say, you know, it's kind of a convenient excuse. I think it's pretty clear. It's like, well, they had connections with these KGB people who were smuggling the money. They didn't want to fucking, you know, it's useful. Snitches get stitches. Exactly. Uh, so if not with like the direct permission or this is certainly tolerated and de facto allowed by the CIA and something we've emphasized before, but it, it can be should be emphasized again, is that though uh, this country is being uh, looted by domestic actors, it's all Western banks, you know, Switzerland, London, New York City, Western accountants, Western lawyers. These people are very happy to take the fees off of stealing all this money and aiding and abetting these crimes under U.S. law, under international law, whatever. Just billions of dollars wholesale being embezzled out of the, out of the country as the Soviet Union collapses. A couple illustrative statistics as to how this went down. The entire Soviet Union's gold reserve is liquidated between 1989 and 1991. What? So every single drop wow. of bullion in the Soviet Union <laughs> manages to disappear overseas in a two-year period. Part of that, uh, I mean, some of it was just theft. Yeah. Like a lot of it was theft. But another part of it was they needed the gold to pay for food. Oh, really? Yeah. Check out that dire. Yeah. yeah it was like, I mean, uh, the planners in in the the special period quote mm -hmm. uh, after the after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was what looked like there could be like a famine almost, mm -hmm. like well, their inflation was like really rampant, and nobody wanted ruble. They have gold. They use the gold to get food. Mm -hmm. So stock up on gold now, Americans. Right at the time, didn't they also like uh, dismantle or they they uh, were like, you know, quote unquote, liberalizing the economy by basically um, taking the state businesses and giving every citizen, um, I guess, of the Soviet Union or the Russian Republic. I, I don't know which um, uh, stocks in these companies supposedly distributed evenly, but then people were just exchanging these stocks for vodka or whatever. Sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And then the people who kind of collected all of them, those ended up becoming the oligarchs. Mm. They were liberalizing the economy by drinking soy milk and putting an all uh, no human being as a legal sign in their yard. <laughs> putting their coexist bumper sticker and on, on their SUV in a in a walled neighborhood, <laughs> gated neighborhood. Or like on the on a market's menu for food, yeah. they're increasing all the prices by like 50 times, but they also put like a BLM thing on it. <laughs> uh, another statistic in terms of this uh, capital flight uh, from the book, the party bosses and the KGB smuggled out at least 20 billion US dollars in capital flight just between 1990 and 1991. So, you know, there's a lot of rats fleeing the Titanic and, you know, all this money either gets uh, sequestered overseas in a Swiss bank account or it gets reinvested into the domestic Russian economy. So what's what's going to happen is basically you're going to have this transition from a Soviet system where the state owns everything to a private system where these private entrepreneurs own everything. But it just so happens that the entrepreneurs are mostly the people who were in charge of the state right. when the state collapsed. But uh, to kind of move on to the Soviet end times, this is 1990 to 1991. This is where it's beautiful that a former Soviet state kind of checks the Marxist boxes for primitive accumulation. (laughs) (laughs) You really do get to see the theory play out in real time. Uh It's it's like the Benjamin Button of states. (laughs) 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 They do socialism and then they go backwards and they do primitive accumulation. It is like Fingoff also. But so the Soviet end times, the 1990 to 1991, uh, according to the book, in 1991, the grain harvest is down 23 percent. The food stores get emptier than usual. And there's a lot of popular discontent. There are hijackings of, you know, food trucks and such. There are bread and tobacco riots. Mm. Uh, Some people might be familiar with with bread riots, you know, famously throughout history when people are hungry, you know, they'll riot and. Uh, smash up shops but apparently tobacco right apparently at this period in the soviet union cigarettes became extremely scarce and uh angry smokers (laughs) would engage in tobacco riots where they would you know smash shops and kiosks and bus stations uh because they'd be waiting in line for cigarettes and then get told we're out or whatever right uh, so, you know, these kinds of... They'd be told, I think I think you've had enough, buddy. Yeah. I'll tell you what I've had enough. They'd be told, this is messing up your skin, and they would get very <laughs> angry. <laughs> they should have found a corner shop with that uh, had black market Virginians. <laughs> yeah, it's, the problem was everyone in the Soviet Union looked like an undercover cop, <laughs> so nobody in the bodega would give them the $10 Virginia cigarettes. Uh, but so, uh, you know, I'll tell you what that, yeah, for me, it takes some building trust when I go to those bodegas. Right. Yeah. You got it. Well, you just got a haircut. You got to let your hair grow long and then you can get the, uh, you can save $5 on cigarettes. Not for me, man. I do it right. That's how you do it. You go in, you get something, you give them like a, like a, like a dollar tip. You get get good impression. Ask them how their day is. And then you walk right back in and go, Oh, Hey man, can I get one of them? 
you build a report, but then you you almost act like, oh, hey, I forgot this one thing, one more thing I wanted here. Mm -hmm. And that guy has to be cool with you because he was just cool with you about you buying a sandwich for $12 or whatever the fuck you do. I will say I have like, you know, now that the pandemic is over for the next two weeks before it starts again, <laughs> uh, yeah. I have been going back out to like New York comedy shows and like hanging out. Okay. And, I, you know, it's, it is kind of like a prison economy. Sure. Where cigarettes are a good form of currency. Oh, yeah. Like if you want to like have a conversation with comedians, you just like pay your $10 to buy a pack and right. then go to a, a show and eventually drunk comedians will be like, hey man, can I bum a cigarette? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is how you like accumulate favors and power right. in a real That's Frank right. Underwood kind mm -hmm. of reading of the New York mm -hmm. comedy scene. Oh yeah. This is how you've gotten to know several headliners by, right. based off of $400 worth of cigarettes. Do you know how many powerful comedians I have helped give lung cancer to? <laughs> <laughs> and the thing that is great about this is you're killing them yes. while actively building trust with them. Exactly. So that they're going to like set me up to take the spots that That's they right. will get That's as right. soon as they die. Oh, yeah. House, House of Cards, but it's a New York comedy scene. That's <laughs> how Demetri Martin did it. The most low-stake House of Cards possible. <laughs> You you immediately get spots at like the biggest club, and the next day they all go fucking out of business. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, Sean's headlining the Stand, the Cellar, and Eastville. Oh yeah, they just shut down. That's crazy. Yeah, you buy like a couple of like cartons of Newports, and suddenly you're in Madison Square Garden. <laughs> How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Cigarettes, my boy. Cigarettes. <laughs> menthols, menthols, menthols. <laughs> As a result of these and other social disruptions, the Soviet Union's deficit uh, continues to grow and Gorbachev decides to reduce social spending. And of course, austerity always makes the problem better. Uh, these social spending cuts result in the first mass labor unrest in Soviet history, Aww. which is actually pretty interesting to know. You know, it's like uh, designated such a totalitarian system, but they managed to go almost a hundred years without any like massive strikes or anything until they hit this particular period. Uh, coal miner strikes break out, you know, strikes across entire industries uh, because of these reductions in social spending and, you know, the, the austerity and the squeeze on normal people. Um, and also the Soviet army, like with the Berlin Wall falling in 89, the Soviets lose their Eastern Europe client states. The Soviet army is forced to reduce spending and retire 500,000 officers. Wow. And something we're going to talk about in, um, in, in later episodes in this series is how uh, the cutbacks in the army and the police for the Soviet Union are part of what kind of builds organized crime also like bodybuilders like it's oh, interesting yeah. it's interesting like you know the soviet Wait, they laid off their bodybuilders yes because you know the soviet state used to have like a great olympic <laughs> bodybuilder mm -hmm. and weight training i mean they literally had a state-sponsored steroid program which still exists um but they would have you know these uh, bodybuilders and weightlifters and olympic athletes and boxers and all of this who were just like paid by the government and suddenly the government is on austerity and the Soviet Union falls apart. Well, we can't pay them anymore. So you just have all these like buff, roided out dudes. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I can be muscle for a gangster. Oh, yeah. And that's for pennies. Uh, yeah. You, yeah. Are those state, actually, those state programs were so successful <laughs> that, well, back when they were actually in a rec an official like Olympic thing. Right, right. That uh, even without the doping, they would beat U.S. people. Because mm. like U.S. wrestlers, have like they are just poor as shit they get no support financially mm -hmm. and i think there's actually there's 
I was watching a thing about this billionaire who was like, I'm going to fund the U.S. team because the government won't do it. <laughs> and um, Sean, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, vaguely. I don't, I don't remember which billionaire. Okay, it was... Was we can look it up. Uh, we have time. I can do a silly bit while you look it up. Uh, you have like a guy that's like at like a uh, wrestling like tournament or something, and he's just in the audience selling like peanuts, but it's steroids. It's like steroids, steroids, get your steroids here. And then like the State Department shuts it all down, and he's like, Nikolai, I've got bad news. Well, the state's not funding us anymore, so you left to pack up your steroids. They wanna, I, they I, need us to have a bathroom in order to sell steroids. They need all sorts of ADA requirements. <laughs> I'm just trying to battle on the street. I can't afford this. I'm an immigrant. You're telling me I can't sell steroids in the stands anymore? What, what will the people put in their buttocks during the matches? There won't be any matches anymore, Nikolai. Wheelchair ramp? I'm selling steroids. I don't need a wheelchair ramp. Wilson, no, no state rules. Yeah, I, even the people in, uh, with, the, with their legs don't work. They still have upper body muscles. They need to push the wheels. Yeah, if they can't get up the stairs, the steroids are working. Nikolai, they want us to do diversity. We need more women, more little people. I don't know what we're going to do. You know who I feel bad for? Who's that? Anatoly Karpov, world yeah. chess champion. They he probably got his his bread basket cut when they uh, he definitely didn't get any steroids yeah he didn't get any steroids and also like what's what's the world chess champion going to be able to market to the mob yeah yeah it's like can I you think you'd be i think you'd be surprised i think that motherfucker must have strategized some hits like i mean on the it real doesn't apply to the real world I, if if a Russian mob can't figure out how to use a chess master, we're all fucked if you ask me. I mean, if you want to... He's uh, like, could you have one of your snipers move diagonally? <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're my bishop. My, my, my name is Vasily. Uh, j just go with it. So if you have these hitmen moving in an L-shaped pattern, <laughs> they can actually jump over the police officers and be unobstructed. It was actually... An, sorry, the, the wrestler... The, the millionaire who funded the wrestler guy was actually an heir to the DuPont fortune. Oh, really? Oh, this is the Steve Carell guy. They yeah, made yeah, they, they made the movie uh, with the there's Channing a, Tatum. There's a documentary also. Oh, oh really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, anyway, he actually went fucking insane, though. And, yeah, I know about this. murdered yeah. a guy. That's on, what the movie's on, on the team, yeah. No. Mm -hmm. I saw uh, the documentary, but not alert. the movie, because for some reason the documentary is a lot easier to find on streaming. Yeah, that happens sometimes. I think it was on Prime for a while, but regardless. But yeah, like his yeah. motivation, though, anyway, to get to, like to connect it to what we're actually talking about. Yeah, no, no, no. His <laughs> motivation was the Soviet no, team okay, was so, way better. So I was right. on a, I, 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 I was on Decider.com, and I was trying to figure out, like, you know, how to watch Foxcatcher, and it's always Team Foxcatcher coming up, <laughs> and I'm like, I want to see the Steve Carell version. That's good. All right. But yes, to get to, to somehow plug what are we talking back about in. Now? to the connective tissue of this episode to plug back in is that these uh, the Soviet army is downsized, the police force is downsized, the Olympic the wrestler. wrestling <laughs> team is downsized, and, you know, 500,000 officers laid off. So it's like you have these people who are all paid and trained by the state to do various forms of violence, right. state-sanctioned violence, and then you just cut them all loose onto the private market. Well, of course, they're going to end up in the private market for violence, which is organized crime and the mafia. Which is also exactly what happened right after the United States invaded Iraq. Hell yes. Um, uh, Brennan, the guy who was basically made viceroy of the country, mm -hmm. 
uh, had the brilliant idea that he was going to do debathification, remove everyone under Saddam Hussein uh, from power, including the entire military. Mm. And uh, so you had a lot of uh, unemployed people with weapons training. Yes. Um, and no job. So um, that went great. Yeah. It's always a good idea to put the people with guns out of work yeah. and give them no alternatives. Yeah. That's probably the biggest complication in the defund the police right. uh, program, which I support, but it's it's also a big complication. I mean, it's something where you just have to, like, you got to give them other government jobs, yeah, yeah. basically. <laughs> Don't when just be it? like, here are your walking papers and feel free to keep that nine millimeter. Yeah. <laughs> the devil finds work for idle hands. That's right. Uh, but so, you know, this is kind of the situation we're dealing with. And this comes to a boil in August of 1991. The Soviet state is in like full on collapse and the Soviet military actually attempts a military coup against Gorbachev to kind of like head this off. August 1991, the Soviet military storms Moscow, puts Gorbachev on house arrest. Um, and what happens is this is what makes Boris Yeltsin's career. Mm -hmm. Because in 1990, as we mentioned, there had been the first national elections for Russian parliament since 1917. Boris Yeltsin becomes the elected president of the Russian Federation. Mm -hmm. So Gorbachev is still the head of the Soviet Union, still the head of the Communist Party, which is, you know, at this point made up of 15 nations, of which Russia is one part. But Yeltsin is the head of Russia, the president of Russia. Right. So Gorbachev is under house arrest by the military. Uh, uh, Yeltsin and his advisors come up with the idea. He's actually outside of Moscow at the time this coup takes place. They come up with the idea of sneaking him into Moscow and getting him into the, the Russian White House in Moscow where the president lives. Getting him in there so that he can become like a symbol of resistance to the coup, basically. That's uh, St. Peter's Cathedral, right? Yeah, something like Yeltsin, that. Yeltsin's in the locker room listening to Lose Yourself <laughs> on, on, on repeat for four hours. Get to the game, Yeltsin. Well, while he's thinking this up. Uh, but yeah, so they get the idea to smuggle him in there, and uh, apparently the Russian troops had orders to like Sorry, not St. Basil's Cathedral. Yeah, the Russian <sighs> troops had orders to not allow him into the White House, but for whatever reason, he's able to sneak his way in there, and he gets into the White House. The Russian tr or Soviet troops surround the White House. There's this tense two day standoff. However, um, multiple several army units refuse direct orders from the military to storm the White House and take Yeltsin prisoner and everyone else prisoner. And actually, two of the commanders of those units, one of them would go on to become Yeltsin's Secretary of Defense, oh, wow. and the other would become his uh, Secretary of the Security Council. Mm. So these two army commanders who refused to storm uh, his uh, place and take the Democrats hostage. Uh, and, you know, because of this, the coup falls apart after three days. Cool. There's celebrations in Moscow, hundreds of thousands of people take the streets and it's, you know, understandable because nobody wants the military to take over the government and they assume, hey, Yeltsin, he was elected. This is our democracy. <laughs> We're going to have like civil liberties and things are looking up now. And, uh, you know, this is like... <laughs> The uh, this is like where you get to the very top of the roller coaster and <laughs> everything is down from here to the point where I think it's arguable that things would be better for Russians had the coup succeeded. Mm. Like, I think the military probably would have been a better actor and steward of of the nation. But who can know such things? Yeah, I mean, I 
you know, someone might be tempted to say that those um, commanders were um, traitors to the worker. Uh, but so the coup falls apart after three days and with the coup falling apart, the Soviet state itself mostly fall apart, which is because the KGB remnants, you know, uh, some of them were loyal to the coup. Of course. The, for the most part, they recognize neither Yeltsin, uh, his government, nor do they recognize the reconstituted communist party. Right, right. Because it's like the former leaders of the communist party, they all go either underground or into private business or some former KGB generals. They set up their own private intelligence agencies using the skills they have from the KGB. Do you think any people played both sides? Yeah, there were a few of them. But it's like, like for the most part, uh, the KGB was so involved in the Soviet state, and after this coup fails, they kind of just go into the private sector. They go underground. Yeah, like uh, uh, Gorbachev's head of security originally reported to the KGB, and uh, after the coup, he reported directly to Gorbachev. (laughs) And yeah, like another interesting thing the uh, godfather of the Kremlin book points out is we, we spent a fair bit of time talking about these billions of dollars in, you know, Communist Party and KGB funds and property and all this. Uh, after the coup, um, several unsolved murders start to follow oh. uh, that appear to be related to these billions of dollars in hmm. KGB and Soviet property. Uh, the, the one example here is several days after this attempted push, uh, uh, Nikolai Kruchina uh, who is the man who controlled Communist Party property at the Central Committee headquarters at Old Square, quote-unquote, jumped out of his office window to his death. Yes. Just a few days after. This is the guy who, like, knows where all the Communist Party property is and has all the receipts and stuff, and he's mm. mysteriously thrown out of a window. By himself. Of course. I should. learned a word for this. He defenestrated. Defenestrated, yes. Or was- Defenestration? Yeah, fine, there's another vowel in there. Whatever. Go fuck yourself. Uh, <laughs> Go was, fuck yourself. He was defenestrated or he self-defenestrated. Yes. Auto-defenestration. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just so sad that I have all these billions of dollars in looted property. <laughs> so some of what you're mentioning here, I feel like ended up in terms of these billions of dollars in uh, Western multinational banks, such as Goldman Sachs, yeah. among others. Was that just, hey, we got to get this money out of this country, funnel it into any place that will take it? Similar to a car breaking down and wanting to use the gas for the next car, you just fucking suck it all out. You know what I mean? It's the same reason that today, you know, Russian or Chinese or Venezuelan or whoever, you know, billionaires or government functionaries Mm -hmm. will park their stolen money in Miami condos or New York City condos or in the United States or banks in the United States or wherever. They just want to get it away from the state so that if their assets are come at, if they come after their assets, they have assets sequestered overseas. Even when the Soviet state was functioning perfectly fine, it was still having to do this. And oh, it had foreign banks, like in, it had like a couple banks in the UK hmm. that it would use to do foreign currency loans so they could get imports and stuff like that. Because like the US, uh, from time to time, the US would just completely cut them off from the dollar market. Sure, sure. And um, in an earlier episode, when we went over the euro dollar market, that was one way in which they circumvented the US um, cutoff gotcha. of the dollar market. Yeah, I'm not surprised that uh, countries and oligarchs would do this regardless if the state is uh, falling apart or not, just yeah. to hedge their bets on how to invest their money wisely. There's like, like funnily, funnily enough, there are like 
plenty of people in the Politburo, even at the very end of the Soviet Union, who mm. would be very adept at doing this type of thing. Makes sense. Uh, but so, yes, the coup falls apart after three days. Uh, Boris Yeltsin emerges as the Russian president victorious. He had stayed firm in the White House while surrounded by these soldiers, and he right. didn't back down, and he represented the hopes of a Russian democracy and the Russian people and all this bullshit. Well, um, I ho- I, I'm sure he celebrated with a nice soft drink. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, he, he kept it Mormon. He, Many he, people said, put the square block where the skinny piece should go. But Boris knew if you stack just correctly, it will eliminate the whole board. Boris Yeltsin, he's the man for the job. You're like, yeah, you try to interview Yeltsin about like Russia in the 90s and he just talks about Tetris the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like am a relatively big uh, Tetris head and uh, Alexei Pajitnov did have like a he- whole bunch of issues with releasing the game because of the USSR. Essentially, they wanted like the IP of the game. And because of this, there are just so many like dummy copies all over Asia because people are like, oh, oh, pay for this? Fuck that noise. We don't, this is a very simple game. We can make this game. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, he got fucked out of... I mean, honestly, it's one of the most played games in the world, probably. Yeah, he, event- he eventually got, like, his his uh, nest egg. Um, but he'd, he'd moved to Seattle, and his, right. uh, his son, uh, unfortunately, uh, decided to go skiing on Mount Rainier. And he did the thing where, you know, you put the long uh, brick... Into why are you like looking at me about skiing, dog? Thing. I don't know this shit. Yeah, he was skiing, and he did that thing. You know, you put the long. He did that basically uh, by falling into a crevasse and disappearing. Oh, really? Yeah, I did not know this. Yeah, <laughs> I knew because he, he didn't fit properly. The blocks <laughs> didn't <laughs> disappear. <laughs> If he had if he had uh, positioned himself correctly, the snow would have disappeared, right. yeah, and the the line would have been cleared out, and he would have That's been true. safe. But, but he he went horizontal rather than vertical, and that was his fatal mistake. Yes, Pajitnov would eventually make a Bejeweled and a few other games. Really? Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. So he guys come up. Hey, Microsoft hired him. Microsoft was like, oh, "We know you can make a game. <laughs> yeah. uh, how about you make some for Xbox?" He's like, oh, "Sure, why not?" Uh, another Russian working for organized crime. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be right back. Uh, but yeah. Hey there, I'm Chris Hayes. <laughs> but yes, Yeltsin, uh, he emerges victorious, uh, the Russian president, but the only other obstacle to his power right now in 1991 is, of course, uh, Gorbachev, who represents the Soviet state, which still exists, still makes up 15 different nations. Uh, in December 1991, so this is the same year, August is the coup, December 91, uh, Yeltsin meets with the leaders of Ukraine and Belarus. Together, the three of them decide to abolish the Soviet Union on December 8th, 1991. Only nine months earlier, a referendum on all Soviet citizens in all 15 nations had voted by 76% to keep the Soviet Union intact. So the dissolution of the Soviet Union was unconstitutional, undemocratic, and totally illegal. And it's just the three leaders, Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia, uh, unilaterally decided to dissolve it. Uh, You know, the leaders of Ukraine and Belarus had their own reasons. Boris Yeltsin did it entirely to just uh, cut the nuts out from Gorbachev to make it so that he didn't have any uh, competition for power. He was the sole authority in the Russian state. Yes, but this brought the free market to the evil empire. Yes, it did indeed. And so the Soviet Union is unilaterally and illegally dissolved. The Soviet state becomes 15 different kind of nationalist governments. Mm -hmm. And it should be noted here, like uh, the book uh, makes a good point. The end of the Soviet Union 
destroys a unified market and distribution service between these governments. Like each of these 15 now sets up their own borders, their own tariffs. Uh, some are taken over by, you know, corrupt former Communist Party functionaries, such as in the Ukraine. Um, the GDP in all former Soviet states, except for a few tiny Baltic ones, plummets. Huh. Uh, and that's like just partly an inevitable result of that, where you did have... In the Soviet system, of course, it wasn't perfect, but you did have a distribution system set up to get, you know, food and medicine and whatever else right. to all these 15 different states. And that just disappears overnight. And now every state kind of has to, like, figure all this shit out and, you know, all these complicated uh, trade regimens are brought back. So it, 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 it brought a lot of economic damage just on the face of it. But what should be emphasized, and I think a lot of people don't know this, is that the aforementioned referendum where 76% of Soviet citizens want it to remain in the Soviet Union. They want it to keep this block going, and it was just unilaterally dissolved in order to uh, cut out Gorbachev. To our listeners, I actually made a mistake. It wasn't Bejeweled. It was Hexic that LXC Pajitnov made. That Hexic, as well as uh, Pandora's Box, the Microsoft game uh, similar to Encarta. So my apologies on confusing listeners if they thought it was Bejeweled. Yogi has um, forfeited all of his Patreon money for the month. That's right. I'm going to Harakiri my Patreon money for this month. And I'm going to invest it in uh, gold after this episode's content. That would be like a fun grub stakers policy is if you make one factual mistake, <laughs> all of your money for the month disappears. <laughs> and in fact, we'll we'll have bounties with the listeners. So if you find a factual mistake, you get half of our Patreon. Oh, shit. You know when you play Fallout on nightmare mode and mm-hmm. uh, one death or hardcore, right, one right. death, game over? Yeah. This is yeah. That's like podcasting. We're podcasting on hardcore, <laughs> mo- hardcore mode. You would not hear a fucking peep out of me for the rest of the episodes. It'd be like, it'd be like, Yogi, what do you, Yogi, what do you think of this? Mm, I don't know, and I don't care to respond. No comment. Yeah, Fallout, uh, staying in bed. <laughs> yeah, just like talking about a Madonna song. Like, yeah, she recorded that sometime in the 80s. <laughs> or like some months, I'd just be like, fuck it. And I'd just be like, yeah, you can take my money for this month and be like, oh, this bitch? Yeah, this bitch ate his bitch's ass out every fucking night. <laughs> Someone emails us documentary evidence. This billionaire has never ate ass. <laughs> Someone definitively proves. <laughs> By the way, Gorbachev, that man's munching on some butt. Pizza Hut man, that man knows the taste of a butt. Oh, yeah. It's like one of those like hair follicle swabs mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. you can do to like detect if somebody has ever eaten ass. <laughs> and a bunch of billionaires do them to like debunk mm-hmm. our podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we cannot be taken as liable because these tests have not been done yet. And obviously, if the tests were done, then maybe we could do it, but the tests have not been done. Yeah, this podcast is either going to last uh, until we get all the billionaires, um, until uh, one of us goes crazy and shoots the rest, or until the technology comes to prove whether or not a billionaire has eaten ass. Uh, but yes, so Rush in the 90s. Uh, so Boris Yeltsin, he gets rid of the Soviet Union. He's the Russian president now. He's the sole authority. Gorbachev is not relevant anymore. And uh, this is where um, the nightmare begins. Mm. Uh, and uh, we're going to we're going to break this up because it's so much depression that you just can't really put it all in one episode. But we'll give you a bit of a preview of like kind of the first stage of collapse. Thanks to the free market, they now have access to Zoloft. That's true. Uh so the uh, the main transition, and I think this is kind of interesting, uh, 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 Paul Klebnikov points out, the main transition from the Soviet state to the Russian state 
is um, monopoly uh, services are provided by mon- in the Soviet state. Services were provided by essentially monopolies with regulation, whereas in the Russian state, services start to be provided by monopolies that have zero regulation. Hmm. Because of course, you know, the Soviet state it was uh, the state controlled the entire economy, so they would just set up what are essentially state-owned corporations to do, you know, make cars or make televisions or radios. And all of this stuff starts getting privatized, but all of the uh, monopoly power continues to exist in these now private actors. So it just creates the absolute worst form of capitalism imaginable. Um, and a few different kind of like hotshot young economists basically take over the Russian state and run the economy in the 1990s. And we'll talk about a, a few of them uh, later on. But the first one is a guy named Igor Gaidar. He's a 33-year-old economist at the time in 1991, and he takes over Yeltsin's economic policy. And he's dealing with this ruble overhang that we mentioned earlier, and he knew that uh, freeing prices would unleash hyperinflation. Hmm. Uh, All the same, on January 2nd, 1992, all prices, save for a few strategic goods, were freed, and immediately they skyrocketed. Uh, as some examples, by the end of 1992, the price of eggs went up 1,900%. The price of bread oh. went up 4,300%. Not bread. The price of milk went up 4,800%. So bread, bread was like a better investment than like the S&P 500 <laughs> over, a, over a decade. You're getting Dogecoin's returns on bread. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it was just like like shit coin returns basically you yeah. think fucking GameStop's hot should have checked out yeast back in the day bro I'm trying to get like Elon Musk to tweet about bread <laughs> <laughs> the price will go up 4,000% but in addition to the uh, you know these massive uh, hyperinflations in these consumer goods the savings accounts that Russians had yielded only a few percent interest salaries only increased slightly so basically in 1992 because all these prices were freed all at once uh, the lifetime savings of millions of Russians were immediately wiped out. I believe, again, we were uh, around this time, Russia has a population of about 148 million. Something like 100 million Russians are almost immediately plunged into poverty. Like, this is what shock therapy was. It was just an absolute nightmare and the worst possible way of dealing with any of this uh, that unleashed absolute deprivation and misery on the people of Russia. And, uh, you know, of course, this is called shock therapy. A common joke at the time is that it was all shock and no therapy. Uh, The Russian GDP drops 19% in 1992, drops another 9% in 1993, another 13% in 1994, and so on for the most of the 90s. Uh, As we mentioned, drops about 50% in four years after this price liberalization i'll tell you what russians way funnier than americans oh yeah you ever follow the russian memes account on twitter i recommend it i like their work on the steel dossier i like that was you know that was some creative stuff about trump liking uh watching women pissing on beds that obama slept on uh that was some good stuff but anyways the these reforms these shock therapy reforms there is one other kind of government department that is abolished as part of all this that ends up being particularly relevant and this is actually the russian ministry of foreign trade um so 
like these thousands of commodities, the prices are all totally liberalized at once, you know, not gradually as most sensible, non-insane people would recommend, you know, kind of like a slower transition like China made. They all liberalize these prices all at once, several thousand percent inflation. People right. are starving and hungry and all this. Um, however, the government still controlled the domestic prices of key export commodities such as oil, gas, aluminum, timber, coal, and fertilizer. So the main uh, export commodities that the Russian state sells on the global market, they do control the domestic prices of, but not, you know, food and bread and, and eggs and such. Right. The Russian Ministry of Foreign Trade had operated throughout the Soviet Union as essentially a corporation that handled Soviet trade. You know, it had representative offices and trading companies all over the world. They worked on commission about 0.5% of sales. So, you know, Russian oil sales, they'll have a uh, Ministry of Foreign Trade office in the Netherlands or something. And if you sell oil there, you can get a little 0.5% commission. This fills up the state coffers. It's like, you know, it's the Soviet way of doing things, essentially. Um, between 1991 and 1992, uh, as part of these shock therapy reforms, the Ministry of Foreign Trade is abolished and the state withdraws from the import-export business, hmm. the Russian state entirely. This step is urged on by the IMF and other Western interests. Um, we'll talk a bit more about some of these Harvard economists who come over in future episodes, including Jeffrey Sachs. Oh, wow. He's like still a, an annoying woke guy on Twitter, but he's like one of the people who advised uh, this economist, Igor Guider, <laughs> to essentially commit mass murder of the Russian people based on, you know, a couple graphs he put together while he was at Harvard. Wild. And it's just sort of funny, like these fucking people come around like with, you know, Black Lives Matter in their Twitter bio yeah. now, like nobody knows what they were doing. Uh, in the 1990s, but well, it's like that that slavery lawyer who oh, argued yes. that uh, Nestle had a, a, a right to inadvertently mm -hmm. uh, use slavery in front of the Supreme Court by saying, "Well, you know, the people who made Cyclone B, they weren't prosecuted," and like <laughs> in between doing that, he's like a woke scold on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's yeah, like yeah, he has a BLM like lawn sign. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> It's like imagining if uh, Heinrich Himmler had his cover photo on Twitter be him shaking hands with Stephen Colbert. <laughs> That's basically who these people are. Uh, but yes, yeah, so uh, this step, abolishing the Ministry of Foreign Trade, is urged on by the IMF and other Western interests. And, you know, the Ministry of Foreign Trade actually functioned quite well. Within two years of its abolition, the country, Russia's official exports had fallen 40%. Because what happens is a lot of these private exports are done on the black market, are not reported, taxes are not paid on them, et cetera, et cetera. So officially, Russians' exports uh, fall 40%, and uh, there's a major drop in import-export tariff revenue as well because the state gets out of the import-export game and turns it over entirely to private actors to the point where by 1994, the majority of Russia's foreign trade is being handled by private trading companies <laughs> rather than the state. Um, and the thing is, when we talk about, you know, these monopolies that used to under the Soviet system have regulation, but now are monopolies without regulation, this is kind of how the looting of Russian state assets is allowed to occur because these price controls, they don't go away. The Ministry of Foreign Trade goes away, but there are still 
domestic price controls on oil, gas, aluminum, timber, coal, fertilizer, key export commodities, among others. So, of course, these connected private actors are able to buy the above-mentioned commodities from the state at a subsidized cost and then resell them on the export markets and pocket the profits rather than have them go into the coffers of the state. It all goes into private actors now. Uh, so this results in massive commodities looting throughout the early 90s. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, Mark Rich, we did an episode on him. He is a, uh, He's now dead. He was a billionaire. He made some good money in this mm. particular period off you know, uh, helping sell Russian commodities. Uh, the new foreign trade companies tended to hide most all of their profits abroad. Capital flight from Russia at this time is estimated at 15 to 20 billion U.S. dollars per year. Of course, zero taxes would be taken on all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, a large-scale pattern of fraud, embezzlement, and tax evasion emerges. And, of course, the natural resource wealth of Russia is looted by insiders and stashed in overseas foreign accounts uh, because of this. Um, dismantling of the Ministry of Foreign Trade and these price controls. Uh, As a result of the price liberalizations, over 100 million people on a population of 148 million were plunged directly into poverty. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this went really well. Uh, The citizens start to appear along the streets of Russia, pawning everything they own to try to survive. Uh, There's um, many instances of uh, heroes of the Second World War who uh, held off the Nazi invasion, the genocidal Nazi invasion, having to pawn their hero of the Soviet Union medals in order to eat food. Jeez. Yeah. You can also uh, buy those at the uh, Hell's Kitchen flea market (laughs) to this day, including uh, uh, Nazi paraphernalia that was clearly not taken off of a living person. Yes. Yeah, it is interesting. Like, there are these, like, Soviet knickknack shops all over where you can just buy, like, these heroic medals that uh, w- had to be pawned and ended up in the West because of shock therapy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like, there's, there, I went there, there's this one guy just, like, full of, like, you know, hammer and sickle memorabilia and then one Nazi thing. And it's like, I know how you got that one or how your, how your uncle got that one. For only $10, you can have the piece of tin they gave to that guy who held out in the siege of Leningrad. <laughs> feel like you actually did something for the world also german flea markets really do have a lot of nazi memorabilia Mm -hmm. people are trying to get rid of their grandpa stuff i'll just let that pass the police are coming for your nazi jokes but so in addition to pawning metals Mm -hmm. uh between 1990 and 1994 male mortality in russia rises 53 percent female mortality rises 27 percent uh, between nineteen close that gap. Between ninety two and ninety eight, three million excess deaths as compared to the Soviet period. Uh, the healthcare system collapses. Uh, there were over one million abandoned children in Russian streets by the end of the nineteen nineties. In fact, four percent of all births were abandoned by their parents. Well. Uh, of course. The sex slave trade comes back in force in Russia in the 90s as all of these people are thrown out of work, thrown into poverty, uh, some, you know, so... The oldest profession prevails. Survival sex work, some are forced into organized crime, some are trafficked to the West. Why does that make you laugh, Stephen, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Prevails. Well, it's fucking, that's what happens. And, you know, this is all just like up until 1994, 
So, you know, this uh, the Soviet Union ends December 91. They do this insane price liberalization January 1992. They just unleash hyperinflation. And basically 92, 93, 94, every one of those years is absolute hell on earth for everybody living within Russia. Um, and, you know, most of the other former Soviet states. And, and I wouldn't say everybody. Some yes. people had a good time. Some people got to experience the uh, Maserati form of capitalism. A few tourists got uh, book deals and uh, some very fun and memorable experiences of which they have written. Uh, but for the majority, things are not so good. And, and it's just kind of like one of those things where we're going to kind of end this episode here in around 93, 94, but we're going to continue it on the Patreon and we're going <laughs> to, it gets worse. We're going to tell how it gets worse because, you know, you have 93, 94 and then uh, 96, 98. There are so many more collapses waiting to happen yeah. within Russia in the 1990s. And it's just so bizarre because let's say the version given to Americans of Russian history is that there was the Soviet evil dictatorship and then the Soviet dictatorship, evil empire. the evil empire, the evil empire falls apart in 1991. And then there's a brief period of democracy and freedom and prosperity that lasts from 91 until 2000. And then uh, uh, Vladimir Putin comes into power and he restores the evil empire. And now it's the Soviet Union again and it's a dictatorship. But there was this brief window of freedom. And of course, what you actually see when you take the slightest look at it is that 91 to uh, 2000 was the worst period in Russian history literally since the Nazi invasion. Like these 3 million excess deaths, that is comparable to Russian deaths in the entire First World War. Wow. And this is in a time of peace. Right. Like this is absolute mass murder on a scale totally unseen in world history outside of war. And again... In the U.S., the deaths of despair are not quite as bad, but it is just so striking to see these economic policies that are pursued, you know, supposedly um, not out of any malice, just because, like, we're following the graphs, we're doing what's right, right, and they result in these literal mass murder of human beings. These mass casualty events that are comparable to, to uh, flu pandemics, that are comparable to literal world wars, result from these economic restructurings, and still you will see people justify them and support them. And, and you know, like... I would argue that indifference is a form of malice. Like, I think there were some people there who knew what was going to happen, yeah. and they were like, well, yeah. I mean, I need a new car. Right. I need a... I need a eighth new car and it's so cynical because like you always hear these western people particularly you know the well-paid pundits or whatever we'll talk about let's say there's this protest in cuba now uh people of course have the right to civil liberties we all support that freedom of speech expression but it's always they always want to trojan horse in economic liberalization. Of course. They're saying when they're out in the streets chanting for freedom or, you know, those people, 100,000 some in Moscow celebrating the the coup being overthrown by Yeltsin in, in 1991, uh, those people were, you know, celebrating freedom. Well, of course, these Harvard IMF guys all come in and say, well, freedom is a free market. Freedom is like, we can't have these, these inefficient state monopolies. We have to turn these over to more efficient private actors. We have to get rid of the state. We have to, to restore everything to the market and these private literal gangsters. And it's just, 
such a it's such a depressing story that plays out again and again. But I, I think like I think why I wanted to do this episode and why I'm excited to continue it on the Patreon is we are going to do more episodes about Russian billionaires in the future. And I think this episode and the subsequent Patreon ones will be some good introductory background because these people are always just dismissed as, you know, oligarchs in the Western media. And, and they are. But that context of Russia in the 90s and the fact that for all his faults, Putin did end this collapse in standard of living that was occurring he did kind of like bring the privatizations under control to an extent. He's, of course, corrupt in his own ways. But it's just one of those things where it's like the Russian people aren't stupid. They know what the 90s was. It was mass murder to them, and they don't ever want to go back. Right. And if you're an American looking at Russia, you can't understand Russia without understanding the 90s. In conclusion, what do you think killed those kids in Dyatlov Pass? What is this? I don't know about this. Was it the avalanche? That's the official story. Yeah. A uh, slow avalanche. What year was that? Uh, I don't know, 78 or something. Um, was it... Aliens. Of Aliens. That's one thing that's floated. Was mm -hmm. it a, a fire uh, from their stove? That's one uh, theory, even though the stove was shown not to have been used. Hmm. Was it... Here's a big theory. A Yeti? Oh. Or, abominable snowman? A Russian uh, missile test that they saw inopportunely and then they were i don't know shot at until they did died in the snow they all died deaths of despair yeah they all died deaths of despair <laughs> i read uh that like the snow simulator for frozen or some bullshit was used to oh yeah i heard about this yeah i know what you're talking about simulate their conditions mm -hmm. and i think they decided it was an avalanche because of this snow simulator basically steven the snow simulator for frozen was so advanced that they decided to use it for a fucking mysteries like this where the movie yeah, the movie froze. It's similar with Jurassic Park and dinosaurs, but like they put so much money into making oh, it, had it like look, a physics engine. Yes, or that's right. Shit. That's exactly right. Uh, yeah. yeah, with Jurassic Park, fucking uh, Spielberg and DreamWorks put so much money into fucking dinosaur studies that they figured out dinosaurs move like chickens. Like that was like the big discovery that came out of Jurassic Park because it was oh, like, nice. oh wait a second, I've seen shit like that move before, and they looked at chickens and like, holy fuck, it's the same, and that like allowed you know, the whole bunch of, I mean. It's so funny that capitalistic art is so science and detail oriented. Yeah, like a, mo that it, a movie inspires <laughs> right. like an actual scientific. Yeah, exactly. I mean, have discovery. you seen have you seen early CGI before they did this shit? I mean, like yeah, it looks you're not like wrong. shit. It's it's garbage. It is garbage. But the idea that the only way we're able to get new knowledge on basic things that should have been solved by just people being like, let's put more money into this, is an eccentric, rich, artistic engineer of a person is like I want to know why salt is like this on crackers and because of that we now know how like fucking cocaine dust can affect people's brains or something you know just fucking random shit like that mm -hmm. yeah but so basically according to uh, the good scientists at Disney it was an avalanche <laughs> and then they got like it chewed was on yeti. they got chewed on by some wolves sure. after the avalanche or something uh... I don't think the wolves got to them. I think they're actually their bodies were pretty well preserved. You can hey, look up these pictures. Online. We'll talk about this and, and more on part two on our Patreon. Uh, we want to say thank you to all our listeners joining us on this uh, episode and our Russia profile, as well as uh, the part two that will be on Patreon in a week or so. I uh, really appreciate you guys checking out our show. Uh, it's been a joy to make and a pleasure. And honestly, it's uh, one of the few things I like to do with my life. <laughs>
And also big thanks to our editor, Chris. I like to smoke Delta 8. I think that's pretty fun. No, you're not getting paid to do that. That's the only issue. <laughs> you get a Delta 8 sponsor and fucking you plug them all you want on the show, bro. That's I'm falling like, out on Delta 8. I don't like it anymore. The goal of being a political dissident is to become enough of a problem <laughs> for the regime that they just have to pay you to smoke weed. So I'm just going to like tweet, keep tweeting about the government until they're like, all right, let's just shut this guy up. Yep. Let's just give him an ounce a month and say no political tweets and I'll make that deal. I'd like the government to know that um, good acid will shut me up. Yes. And mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. Shut you up after after your flight from a 15th story window. <laughs> so I'm tweeting, ungo- become ungovernable. <laughs> and you're just like coughing your ass off. Yeah. Well, unlike my co-host, I'm like Randy Moss. Straight cash, homie. You fucking yeah. put it in the <laughs> bank. I'll do whatever you don't want me to do. Yeah, but uh, thank you for listening. Please check us out on Patreon if uh, you want to continue this depressing journey through the 1990s of Russia. We're going to take you all the way up to the rise of Vladimir Putin, and then we'll, in the future, explore some other Russian billionaires. And listen to our other episodes if you'd like to take a separate depressing journey. <laughs> and yeah. with that, this has been Grubstakers. I'm Yogi Polywell. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Steve Jeffries. I'm Sean B. McCarthy. And look, you know, you're going to get that experience soon because Biden economics... That that's gonna mean that eggs are gonna cost one thousand eight hundred percent more. Uh, bread four thousand. Gotta save that stimulus, baby. That's yep. all you could have fucking hoped on. Buy bread futures. <laughs> Should not have blown that stimulus uh, on Dodge. He's coin. a oh, socialist. No. Put in oro wheat, baby. Fucking General Mills. That's the shit that's gonna last. Okay. Good night, everyone. Bye. Huddled in rubble, dying like crazy. Yeah, basically. Anyways, cut all this, Chris. Cut all our great Battle of Stalingrad uh, material. Let's get this done so I can smoke some weed.